Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the FinTech episode for this month. We can't believe March has nearly been and gone for 2021. Eric Smith, CEO of App Brilliance, is our guest joining us on the show today, all the way from Texas. App Brilliance helps businesses by bypassing payment processing networks and risky financial data aggregators with its open banking and open payments tools. We find out more about Eric's previous technology-based roles and discover what was it about fintech that drew him in. So grab a coffee and enjoy the episode. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today on the FinTech podcast. We were just talking um, off air for a second about the joys that is technology at the moment. Um, You know, the joy of not it being you're on mute, but actually the opposite of we couldn't hear each other at all. (laughs) Um, So Eric, before you introduce yourself, um, can I just ask, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, We're based out of Austin, Texas. So we had a little bit of a a weather snafu. Uh, You may have made made the news. Um, We were without power and water for about a week. Uh, lots of things froze down here, but we made it out okay. So I'm, I'm uh, happy to be talking with you today and having uh, good internet access and heat. Well, that is a relief. I think today I was kind of fingers crossed hoping that it was going to be okay, obviously having the conversation with you, you know, we've worked out all the technical issues, but I think that like you just said, actually seeing on the news in the last week, seeing how much of a blizzard and the snow and everything in Texas, you know, it just looked... I mean, I thought we had it bad in the UK the other week, but you guys have just really put the chair on top of the cape with that. And I'm glad obviously electricity and everything, you know, you've got it, got it back again. Um, so that, that is a relief. <laughs> um, so just to start off today, uh, another nice thing, you know, for a lot of our listeners, just to say that some of our listeners are obviously uh, quite regular into tuning into the FinTech podcast. Um, but for anyone that's new that's listening, could you, for an introduction, could you introduce yourself and just describe your career up to, until you um, founded the company at Brilliance? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I'm Eric Smith. I'm the founder and CEO of App Brilliance. Uh, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur. Um, I dropped out of college at the age of 21 in 1994. Um, I was an honors business management uh, and speech communication major at Texas A&M University. And uh, there was a little thing going on at the time called the internet. Um, <laughs> people were, <laughs> people were uh, doing some really interesting and amazing stuff. And so uh, some friends and I had a really, really terrible business idea, decided that we were going to make a go for it. So I uh, left school but my senior year, uh, dropped out with a 3.8 average. I think my parents thought I was a little crazy. I've been doing this sort of ever since. So started uh, started as a college dropout and have maintained my track record of success ever since. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, my first company that I started was a game company. Uh, we did a contract with uh, as a developer, independent development studio. Uh, so I went in as twenty at 21 years old negotiating a game deal with uh, the titans of industry at Activision and Interplay um, and got a game deal, built a game studio to 20 people. Uh, and, you know, ever since then, I've been just doing interesting stuff. I got into fintech with my last startup. It was a venture back startup here in Austin, uh, originally called Unward Nation. Uh, had a name change when we started focusing on fintech. Uh, the name of that company at the end was Unward Banking. And Unward Banking built mobile banking apps uh, for uh, Q2E banking and other uh, online banking platform providers that had not yet fully embraced mobile applications for their banks. And um, we started there. And uh, after a few years, we looked at how we could extend that platform outside of uh, the ecosystem at Q2. 
and integrated that technology uh, with data aggregation technology like Plaid and Yodely Infinicity and Intuit's technology at the time to try to reduce the integration barrier for banking, uh, for adoption for those mobile applications in banking. And so that's sort of how I got my start in FinTech uh, for the last 10 years or so, and really gave me sort of a grounding in the backend systems for banks and the interoperability and integration challenges that especially banks in the United States face when we don't have open banking and open payments over here. So that experience was sort of foundational in my education of learning the challenges uh, in this space and created the opportunity to address those challenges. Um, and so directly coming out of that experience uh, with my prior startups, uh, realized that there were some there were some serious holes uh, from a fintech perspective in terms of the ability to um, build really high performance disruptive applications. And those holes were really based on the uh, lack of the ability to control the underlying uh, financial account for the consumer on the consumer's behalf. All the other technologies that are out there basically just give you a sort of a, a surface level view of the data in those accounts. They can't actually allow you to interact with them. And so my prior experience at Malaya Startup directly sort of informed my vision of, of the challenges of the space and created a set of opportunities after I started this company to kind of rethink different ways of doing that sort of integration layer between the fintech companies and you know, technology providers and the underlying financial accounts. And that's the foundation of, of what we brought to market with uh, at Brilliance and we're just doing it in a, in a slightly different way and leveraging that technology for payments now. I think that sounds great, you know, just with um, that timeline that you've just given me there to really see your career progression, um, like you said, over the last 10 years or so. That's really interesting to see sometimes that, you know, we've had guests on here before where they've had, you know, sort of um, their thoughts have gone through even when they were back at college, um, you know, university, where they thought, actually, this is the idea that I want to go through, you know, and it's whether it's, you know, turning into um, leaving school early or anything which actually puts you onto a different curveball or a different path. It's really interesting, actually, what you've just said. Um, so I think with with that, you know, with everything happening at the moment for you, especially with that brilliance, um, it's quite interesting, you know, to actually look back and think this is how far you've got. So, um, no, I think this is great. This is great already. I think um, <laughs> a lot of our listeners, you know, will, will appreciate um, what, what you've just talked about there. Um, well, I'm not. I'm not smart enough to have who to have <laughs> left college with this idea fully formed. Um, it, and honestly, you know, one of the one of the the opportunities and challenges of being an entrepreneur is just sort of absorb what's in the cultural zeitgeist. You know, what's happening at the time, and try to find the best and highest use of your time on Earth. And mm -hmm. so, what I was focused on when I was in college is radically different than today. But at the end of the day, it's all it's always about trying to find. Um, ways for creating the future that we would like to see for ourselves and for our families. And, you know, in, honestly, I feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to lead the life I have, regardless of whether, you know, the amount of success that I've achieved or not. Um, it's, it's been something that's been very rewarding. I think it definitely sounds like it. You know, you just mentioned there, actually, you know, um, in the line of it being, you know, what's happened so far, you know, on earth of how you've got on with things. I think for a moment we have to talk about, you know, um, actually witnessing, um, you know, the news that we've seen, you know, what's happening on Mars. I mean, that's kind of off topic for a second, but I think even with that as a bit of innovation, you know, technology wise, that's just, 
oh, it's surreal, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's amazing, you know. We the the old uh, uh, I don't know what it's called the 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 adage I guess you know everybody mm -hmm. would look around and say, well, where's the future? Where's the flying cars? Um, I, I have a, a of a colleague who who sold his company and now he's building flying cars, oh, right? Wow. <laughs> and 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 we're we're living in a world where you know cars drive themselves now. To to it, you were on the cusp of that flying cars. You know, there's people spotted next to airplanes and jetpacks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's 2021. We live in a dystopian future. It's an episode of Black Mirror, and um, you know, it, it's. <laughs> I'm privileged, you know, it's the best time, it's the best time to have ever been alive. I'm privileged to still be here. Absolutely. I think what you just said there with it being the future of it being more of a dystopia, it's, it's exciting. I'm all for it. Um, we don't know, you know, what, what it's going to be like in the next few years. Obviously, um, COVID is one thing which we can, we'll probably discuss in a bit, you know, that being something which, you know, wasn't um, planned for, or, you know, we are adapting with that. But as things unfold you know and that's why i say with obviously the news with the um, everything happening on, on mars at the moment that's just oh that's something which i think we, we, we should save for another conversation because obviously the, the main purpose is to talk about fintech and everything but yeah that's just it's, it's exciting to say the least um now eric you you mentioned obviously you're an entrepreneur um and your career um how it's obviously been very technology based um you know with the roles that you've um been doing um could you just talk about you know what was it about finance finance or fintech which drew you in you know obviously you mentioned earlier um the kind of route that you went through but is there anything else that you'd like to mention on that uh i i tried to stay away from it as hard as i could with this mm -hmm. company um my original my original thesis in forming at brilliance was basically don't do fintech and don't sell technology to banks. <laughs> That's really <laughs> what I wanted to do. Um, but I kind of got drawn back into it um, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you just sort of see opportunities and you see um, the areas that just need to be disrupted and not in necessarily in a, in a destructive sense, but in mm -hmm. a sense that, you know, there's a status quo that benefits certain parties and you know it's that status quo is standing in the way to sort of an optimized better future and so you know that's that's uh it's sort of a long way of saying like i i, I tried to quit fintech mm -hmm. but i couldn't <laughs> and uh i got drawn back into it um with that brilliance and I, i'm but i'm i'm very glad that i'm back i'm glad to to back into the space because i think it's honestly one of the most exciting spaces that can make the biggest difference in in the average consumer's life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I can't deny for a moment, I did kind of have the Godfather reference there where, you know, they, they think they can take me out, but they pull me back in. That kind of went over my head for a second. Um, but no, I think it, you said it right with FinTech. It's just something which you are kind of, you are brought back into because it's something which is just so exciting to see the innovation, you know, the digital transformation that's happening with this. Um, and if you are lucky enough to be on this journey, obviously I include yourself in on this because any sort of fintech entrepreneur or expert like yourself, it's probably quite satisfying to see how it has, you know, gone for you over the years and actually seen, you know, this is the improvements, the development and everything else in between. Um, so Eric, obviously um, you clearly have a talent and a taste uh, for fostering digital disruption. Um, could you just answer, um, what methods do you employ to ensure that you can scale advice according to the size of the operation? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I never have been afraid to take a big swing at a market that 
I think will make a big difference as long as it's sort of in my wheelhouse and space, which is very broadly defined as, you know, software assisted technology services, right? I'm not a hardware guy. I, I really don't do social media stuff well. Um, I, I really like being in the picks and shovel business, right? Building mm-hmm. uh, software that is utility for these different things. But, you know, from a disruption perspective, I, I think of it in terms of what would I like to see in the future? And what is a really big challenge that, that is out there in the space today? What is something that people sort of take for granted as sort of being just the almost like the laws of uh, natural laws of the universe, right? And then work mm-hmm. backwards from that and say, okay, you know, these are a lot of the sort of fundamental assumptions that people make about a certain market in fintech or whatever. And let's, let's work backwards from a premise of where we want to see things uh, be and work backwards from that premise and try to think very simply in terms of, you know, are there, are there ways of addressing this, this uh, opportunity that don't, um, there's a phrase we use called bold the ocean, right? That doesn't mm-hmm. require uh, enormous amounts of adoption or, you know, uh, coordination between different firms that doesn't, you know, require wholesale change, you know, ripping out all of the different infrastructure inside of a business and replacing it with something new. So looking for these very rare opportunities where uh, there's a leverage point, it's almost like if you can imagine banking or payments being this very, very complicated machine with, you know, uh, gears and sprockets and everything. And you can look for that one place, one uh, intersection point, one nexus that you can go and say, okay, if I if I just make this one tweak, I could either freeze this machine or I could radically improve this machine, right? I could make it faster, I could make it more energy efficient, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so that is really sort of like the key to innovation from my perspective is work backwards and look for those simple points where you can take action on th- something and have an outsized effect and make sure that that outsized effect is something that ultimately, you know, results in a, in a world that's, that is uh, more aligned with your vision of what you'd like to see for yourself or your kids. And that, and that's sort of the, the approach that I take to innovation in all spaces. Um, in fintech, it's particularly important um, because there are so few, there are so few ways to get scale uh, and to get uh, the opportunity to affect change broadly. Um, and like many things, it's uh, it's a it's a ecosystem is dominated by network effects, you know, Metcalf's law. And so, you know, when you you look through these systems, you look for the opportunities to you know find those specific technological or process nexus points that can you know both basically give you both scale, right? So if you mm. if you attack that one point, it, it is able to affect the whole system but also it's something that is actionable by a small company, right? Something that a, that a team of, you know, five or 10 really, really, uh, really, really energetic, smart-minded, uh, disruption-oriented people can go in and say, look, this is, this is a problem and a challenge that I can boil down to something that's very simple um, conceptually, maybe very, very difficult, technically challenging, or, you know, at the time you come up with it, maybe even impossible to do. But you can continue to focus on that thing and you've, you've simplified the problem space and the solution that you're going for for that problem to, to the point where it can be executed by a small team. Um, the world today is really 
broken up into all these different uh, problem sets. And many of the problem sets we face, you know, whether it's landing a lander on Mars or climate change or COVID, you know, a lot of these problems are massive systemic, you know, or existential risks that require massive coordination of humanity to, to, achieve, to achieve, you know, change. And those are exciting and challenging problems. And people like Bill Gates and, and Elon Musk and, and uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, they mm. spend their life solving those kind of problems that require massive scale. But there is a mirror image of that, which is, you know, areas that, you know, potentially small teams can attack because of that leveraged execution that I was talking about. Um, and those are the spaces that I think are right for entrepreneurs to to exploit because you know it's 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 extremely uh, rewarding with with a small team and and limited financial resources to have those type of opportunities to to attack that space where it doesn't necessarily you know the the prerequisite is well first get a hundred billion dollars right? <laughs> and then after you have a hundred billion dollars you can do X Y and Z you know it's really it's 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 super rewarding to build. Uh, a disruptive opportunity and team uh, and process around something where you instead say, okay, we've got five people um, mm. and half a million dollars, you know, what's the biggest and best impact we can have with that? Absolutely. I think, you know, talking about, um, you know, the disruption sort of, or the effect that you have with it, if it's exactly what you said, you know, it makes total sense. If you've got sort of a very minute, um, problem or something which is actually in that chain where you're saying actually this is something which could be improved this is something that could be developed and actually having more of a niche team behind you um you know it's the significant amount of people that have the right skills the right tools and actually then you can see where it goes from there it's not necessarily like you said you know it's this starting from the big picture and then trying to bring it down it's actually let's just you know try and pace ourselves with it but this is what we're really focusing on this is how we can you know develop it and improve it um so yeah i, I think um that's quite interesting what you've said um well there's there, there's two sorry, points to that i want i want to go back to that real quickly so um mm -hmm. so you can you can look at a big problem that you want to attack and the key though is to is to try to find a solution that is simple to execute that can scale up and solve that big problem there are many, many, many entrepreneurs, and I, I hope I did not, it, my rambling answer to your previous question may have left the wrong impression. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that focus on very small incremental improvements and change. And that is, that is necessary, but it's also safe. And, you know, that is a Pareto function. 80% of entrepreneurial activity is, is very much sort of an innovation activity, is very granular and is incremental. And what I'm actually suggesting is the mirror image of the big of, of the Big Bang, right? Of of the SpaceX, of the Tesla. Um, it is the mirror image of that, but with fewer resources and more focus, right? So you have the opportunity at sort of the quantum level to make very, very, very uh, deep impacts that can uh, that can potentially influence much larger systems if you find the right nexus point of focus. Right. And, and that's really what I'm suggesting, which is, you know, that's something that a lot of the entrepreneurs that are focused on these sort of incremental solutions can do with the same teams and the same budgets, but they can find different problem sets that actually have the, the opportunity to have a bigger, more lasting impact than just, you know, incremental small improvements to the, to the status quo. And that, and that's, 
I'm sorry to interrupt, but that was really what I was trying to, to suggest in terms of disruption. I don't think mm-hmm. you can niche your way out of into disruption. I think you have to mm-hmm. take risks. You have to have a bigger picture vision and you have to be going, you have to be swinging for the fences for that. But it does not require infinite budgets, infinite teams, infinite capital. Um, you can do it with a smaller team if you find the right uh, leveraged point. Yeah, no, I think with what you just said there, Eric, you know, obviously just, um, you know, um, to clarify w- w- what you've just discussed, that, that makes a lot of sense, you know, actually, it's just having the right resources, having, you know, the, the plan of action, which is, to, you know, going to take place, whether it's with innovation, um, any sort of disruption, um, that that's a great example, obviously, of just showing how, you know, it can work effectively. Um, now, just, just for a moment, obviously, I want to talk, you know, in terms of um, App Brilliance, um, what was... Um, I suppose actually, yeah, what has been the most crucial piece of technology to executing your vision for the organization? Well, I mean, let me give you the glib answer first, which is okay. that, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? So if it wasn't for uh, the the people that, you know, laid the groundwork for uh, ultra fast, fully distributed, you know, uh, 4G and 5G networks, right? That that are affordable and that you know mass consumers have access to. If it wasn't for Steve Jobs' vision with the iPhone and the subsequent explosion of smartphones and the fact that we're all carrying around supercomputers in our pocket, those are prerequisites, right? Without those things, then many of the things that that we want to do would be impossible to do. And the, those are the type of big picture innovations that have happened you know, over the last decade that have sort of enabled us to be at the point we're at. Um, so that's the, that's the first thing. So mm-hmm. the, so that, that's sort of a table stakes answer. And I think it, anybody who's being intellectually honest on your show should always start with that answer <laughs> because if it wasn't for that, you know, we, we, by and large, none of us would be here or we would be working on different problems and it would be a very different space, but that's, so that's the first part. The second part though, you know, I'd classify as uh, tailwinds versus headwinds. So part of the tailwinds on the technology and adoption side and the market side um, that has been really critical for us uh, is the focus on uh, consumer uh, checkout experiences um, and different ways that people can buy and interact with businesses. And that has really been underlined by uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. So, you know, retailers are moving to different ways of doing business, online ordering, curbside ordering and checkout, um, you know, self-checkout. They're doing a lot of things to make consumers more comfortable and empowered to do business with them. And that has radically accelerated the pace of innovation and given more entry points for startups that are building fintech applications to integrate those applications. And it's not like you know, 10, 15 years ago, it, if you were trying to do innovations in payments, that meant that it had to be uh, something that was expressed at the point of sale. That's no longer the case. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. those sort of tailwinds are, are, are very, very important and, you know, form the prerequisite of, of what we're doing here that allow us to be successful. And then ultimately, you know, this all stems from identifying those very hard problem sets or those hard um, to engineer opportunities that are sort of, again, those nexus points of innovation and recognizing what those are and then basically building IP and a team around that that is smart enough to execute on that vision. 
And so ultimately, given all the prerequisites that we talked about, those, those sort of tailwinds, right? The persistent internet access, supercomputers in our pocket, the, mm-hmm. the defined challenge and integration point for moving commerce away from point of sale and being faster in terms of the adoption cycle for responsive to consumers. All of those things are the prerequisite. And then we took it. Yeah, I think that's definitely something which you just mentioned, you know, um, at the start of your answer, obviously the thought of adoption as one thing, you know, is just actually seeing how, uh, you know, whether it's in the hospitality sector at the moment or retailers are actually just trying to think of, I suppose it's more, it's turned into like like a plan B, I suppose, you know, um, a way to kind of survive at the moment of distributing your product, you know, whether it is in a retail environment, um, you know, to moving stuff so it's online, which then kind of leads us on to obviously online payments, everything needs to be quicker, faster, more reliable. And that does seem to be something at the moment in regards to the impact of COVID, Um, you know, hopefully, with how we do see the months um, move forward, it's gonna obviously more be more of a benefit, um, you know, seeing how hopefully COVID is kind of calmed down is the wrong word, but to at least have that we've kind of got a lid, you know, kind of on things. But um, yeah, I think it'll be, um, it'll be interesting to say the least, um, you know, see how things are going, you know, at the moment I'd probably say just off record, um, you know, how, how has App Brilliance, um, I suppose, been impacted over the last year in regards to COVID? I mean, has that been something which you've been able to kind of take a step back and then just, you know, adapt and move on? Or has there been any real challenges? Uh, there were some challenges uh, with COVID that were specific to App Brilliance and the state of the company and what we were doing at the time mm-hmm. when, <clears throat> when all of this sort of was first recognized in the United States as being something that was going to be, you know, a, a, at least a 12 to 18 month uh, slog. So roughly in, you know, April, March, uh, March, April timeframe mm-hmm. of, of 2020, we were in the middle of closing a seed round of financing. So um, whenever you have these sort of disruptive events uh, that are sort of black swan events that come out of nowhere, Um, the natural reaction in the markets um, and investment community is to basically tighten up. And so deals that were very, very close to being, you know, funded or done Mm -hmm. can sometimes go away. And so the natural reaction uh, in the markets is to do that and then take a little bit of a wait and see approach. And then, you know, typically things sort of loosen up after a few months. And we were at a very crucial point with that. Um, and you know, it it actually did disrupt our ability to close the the financing round at that point in time. But we were um, flexible enough, and we were not at a position where we needed the cash uh, at that instant. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to give ourselves some additional runway. And then, of course, you know, it turns out in hindsight that a lot of these impacts were actually uh, tailwinds for us, not headwinds. So it enabled us to kind of come out of that stronger, uh, to raise more money than we had actually originally intended at a better valuation and, um, you know, execute like hell. Um, So in a lot of ways, it's been uh, in the payment, the contactless payments, these sort of next generation rails, these new consumer checkout experiences, all of these have been... um, one of the, the, the bright points, the bright spots um, in the industry in the software and uh, services industry. Um, and so, you know, the adage is like, would you rather be uh, 
lucky or smart. And I would absolutely be uh, remiss to say that uh, I would I would rather be smart than lucky in this space. Being lucky, it, you know, I hate to say that because you know COVID is such a negative uh, drag in the world and impacted so many people and killed so many. Absolutely. I think, Eric, you know, just as you mentioned, obviously, with how it was uh, March, April 2020 um, for your company, as we're obviously we are hitting, I suppose, technically a year on from that now. um, It'll be interesting to see, obviously, how much has changed in a year in regards to obviously how you've continued, you've survived and thrived um, in the last year and actually see the comparison of how much is different. but no, I think with what you've said, you know, it's just something which we are taking into light and sort of see how things are going, you know, for not only your company, but for any fintech company at the moment, it seems to be we are just kind of going with the flow. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting experience. I, you know, I say interesting, uh, I don't know if that's the right phrasing there, but it's just, it's one that we're all witnessing. But um, there is still a question mark on how the... Uh, the uh, the rest of the year will be but hopefully it'll be uh, for for the better um so um i suppose one of my next questions for you is um for a moment could you um outline for me the general state of real-time payments you know we were talking about um payments before but in the finance sector at this time um what innovations are needed to take it further and how is that brilliance helping to usher these in so um let me preface by saying i am uh i'm an ugly in america Right. So I, I am, <laughs> I am uh, yes. So I am, I'm an ugly American. Um, I have not spent uh, any time. My passport does not have stamps for uh, a lot of international travel. And so uh, I am aware of what's going on in the rest of the world, but I am not an expert in it. Right. So again, let me preface this by saying, so this is a very U uh, S centric view when I talk about faster payments or real-time payments. You know, I'm sure a lot of your audience is familiar with open banking, open payments as adopted in the EU. Um, that is not something that exists in the United States. And so, you know, from a U.S. centric perspective, we've got over 11,000 financial institutions here, which is an astronomical amount. Mm. Um, and those financial institutions are really kind of split into two big picture categories, right? You've got the the very, very large institutions, like the top five U.S. banks that cover, you know, something like 80 plus percent of consumers. And then you've got the other 11,300 something financial institutions that cover, you know, that, that sort of Pareto function, that other 20 percent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a very, very uh, diverse ecosystem. Uh, lots of different banks, lots of different um, back-end systems, core systems and online banking systems for those banks here. Um, and there's, you know, in, a, in sort of an American fashion, there's this emphasis on freedom of choice. And so there are so many different options for banks to implement their, uh, on their backend systems that it creates uh, some substantial challenges to create those network effects of scale. So in the U.S., from a faster payments perspective, what we're seeing is a focus on push rails, so um, people are moving forward with these next generation rails that are designed to be triggered by the consumer versus triggered by the network. Mm-hmm. So um, you've got primarily uh, Zelle, uh, and then you have RTP by the clearinghouse, 
and then you have uh, what's both known as Fed Instant and Fed Now, which is you know the the sort of next generation interbank Fed mediated real time um, clearing process, um, which is aspirational. <laughs> that you know <laughs> there's there's I think that that is that is something that's perpetually uh, just over the horizon. Uh, at some point, uh, hopefully, we will see that. But the you know the major projects that people are working on here uh, that are exposed from a business consumer expected perspective are Zelle and RTP. And those again are primarily designed as push rails. So the business or the consumer would log into online banking or into their mobile app. They would uh, not have access to these rails by default. They would have to go through an enrollment process. They would go through that enrollment process. They would agree to a specific set of uh, terms and access conditions to those rails. Um, which I believe are being implemented so that the banks can treat those rails as sort of non-reggy or non-recourse rails, mm-hmm. um, more cash-like than uh, traditional, you know, debit and credit card payments, which have a lot of uh, anti-fraud, anti-abuse uh, uh, provisions in them that'll, that, you know, have tipped the balance very much back toward the consumer in terms of being able to dispute uh, even legitimate charges. And so, uh, the banks have implemented these, these, you know, Zelle, RTP, et cetera, and they are exposing that to businesses and consumers inside of their mobile and uh, online banking systems. That's sort of the, the state of play in the U.S. These are push versus pull rails. They're opt-in, um, which, you know, may be seen as sort of a reggae workaround by the banks. Um, and they're defined, uh, at least in the case of RTP and Zelle, as sort of no, non-recourse rails. Um, so that, that's a unique set of, uh, of features that have their own benefits and challenges. And um, they are very, very, very different than traditional sort of payment debit and credit rails or even something like ACH um, for you know, interbank transfers and payments. They're very, very different. Um, but the, the banks, <clears throat> excuse me, the banks are uh, ex, uh, are deploying these systems, and they're adding it into their mobile and online banking applications, and they're making those things available under you know either their own brands in the case of something like uh, Chase Quick Pay powered by Zelle, um, you know something like that. They're they're rolling these things out to their consumers and businesses that way. So in terms of you know taking a look at what's available as infrastructure, you know the the challenge is from a business perspective, how can a business accept those transfers or payments in a retail context or anything other than sort of a a business-to-business invoicing uh, payments context? Um, Because it does not have, you know, the, the, it it doesn't have the, uh, the surrounding infrastructure around it that can be dropped in into a payment flow the the they would currently expect with a debit or credit card or or something Mm -hmm. like that so i mean so as built here would be the experience let me let me walk you through sort of an experience if someone were try to implement zelle um, as a payment method without our technology for example Mm -hmm. so they would go to let's let's use a, a grocery store you know curbside delivery example they log into their grocery account, they would you know, see an option to pay with Zelle or pay with RTP. The grocery retailer would say, okay, here is our 
our token. Here is our, our network identifier. Please copy this. Don't, mm -hmm. don't mess this up, right? <laughs> uh, go into your online banking portal in another browser. Uh, log in, navigate mm -hmm. into your Zelle or RTP portal. Oh, by the way, you may need to opt into all those agreements. Once you've done that, uh, add a contact inside of your Zelle or RTP portal um, for that network identifier, which by the way, again, don't mess that up. Mm -hmm. uh, put that in there, acknowledge that, get that into the system for your online, for your personal online bank configuration or your business bank configuration then come back into the retailer's checkout page and we're going to give you a transaction id um, please copy this and put this in the memo field and then send us a payment for uh 75 you know whatever it is the the, the checkout amount from the retailer copy that payment amount make sure you do a payment to that address with that memo field with that payment amount and send it to us and then come back to my retailer's page check a box saying i've made that payment and then the retailer is going to have some process, not, not clear what that process would be. Maybe it's a manual process where there's somebody on the back end hitting refresh <laughs> on their bank account mm -hmm. to see that that payment had come in and then match that transaction ID uh, or you know, payment amount to that specific invoice um, so that they can close that ticket and then allow you to pick up your groceries at the curbside. <laughs> Okay, so mm -hmm. that is that is quite literally what would have to happen if the rails as they exist were to be employed in a retail context. And so, you know, as I'm walking you and the listeners through that, it's very absurd to think that that could actually work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that anyone Absolutely. Would do that. <laughs> yeah. So what we've done is we basically said, okay, that is obviously not going to work, right, in terms of being able to scale to a retail context. And so what we have to do is we have to build a sort of a meta integration layer on top of that. So we abstract all of that stuff away and make it a simple, seamless process that can be injected into that retailer's checkout page. And so let's contrast the way our system would work or a system that was similar to ours would work um, instead of what we just discussed. So in that exact same example, they would log into their grocery account or you know, their, yeah, they log into their grocery account, they would see a, a, a branded option for, um, for a checkout uh, using you know, a direct payment checkout option. Mm -hmm. uh, it would likely be under that uh, grocery retailer's own brand. So the consumer would trust it more they would click that, it would then allow them to link their bank account in a similar manner to, you know, the way that Plaid or Finicity or, or MX or whatever is, is currently making those options for account linking available today. So they would be able to pick their bank, they would enter their credentials, uh, that would be encrypted and stored locally in the case of our architecture so that those credentials are never shared. Um, and then it would take them through, it would detect whether they had auto, uh, they had activated Zelle or RTP, et cetera. If they had not, it would immediately uh, take them through that enrollment process inside that retailer's checkout page using the exact screens as the bank would, uh, you know, basically create a, a miniature session for enrollment and then in, in line to the checkout. And then after that, our software would take over and automate all of the additional steps of contact management that we had discussed, 
you know, injecting mm -hmm. the, the token in there. And then we would handle the process of actually pushing the payment and monitoring for that payments receipt all within, you know, roughly 10 seconds um, in that checkout experience. And it, it's exposed to the consumer in a very similar way to PayPal. So the end result mm. of that is something that's very simple. It's basically one or two clicks um, and it's very secure. And, you know, it eliminates the need for all of that additional backend processing and, you know, those payment flows that just are not compatible with traditional retail payment flows. So, um, with those type of systems in place, which of course is what we're specializing in doing, but I expect that, you know, as an alternative to what we've done, you know, you could look at uh, guaranteed H, uh, ACH flows by, you know, providers like uh, Mazuma and other companies that are partnering with Plaid and, and folks like that, uh, that do a similar flow, but they, they're based on pull uh, ACH rails. So, you know, they're not real time, they're more expensive, you know, there's, there's dispute risks, um, but, but the user experience is very similar, uh, and the end result of both of these, uh, of, you know, systems that either use our architecture as a push that's real time or as a, as a pull base or guaranteed ACH, the end result is lowering the transaction cost for the merchants, um, and giving the consumers choice for how they make payments in a way where, you know, theoretically it creates a, an architecture or a, a set of economic incentives so that the retailer um, can reward customers that pay um, in a way that saves them money. And so there can be this uh, almost a, a, a transactional uh, consideration, right? So as by reducing the payment process cost to the merchant, you know, if it's someone like Starbucks, for example, you know, Starbucks can give you extra, you know, extra bonus stars or, you know, extra rewards because, you know, you're improving their profit margins by paying in this way, in this different way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are the type of things that I think are going to be, uh, so first of all, those are the rails that exist. Um, there's, there's technology and, and architecture barriers for those actually, and process barriers for those rails as they exist to actually make a dent in retail commerce. And so, the next step is these sort of software abstraction layers and platforms like ourselves that can leverage these sort of next generation rails and turn them into something that's actually uh, viable for consumers and businesses. I think the process which you've just walked me through there, obviously, you know, I appreciate that you've um, talked about, you know, um, I suppose all of it in a lot of detail, you know, <laughs> with a lot of um, everything that you've talked about is, is quite interesting, actually. Um, just from the different side of things in regards to obviously B2C and seeing, you know, how the consumer is in that regard of trusting um, certain um, apps, I suppose, to say, you know, with how you are using um, your devices and actually going through this process, which, you know, theoretically is only 10 seconds, which, you know, all of this can happen. Um, I am just wary um, the time that we have left on this podcast, um, but um, luckily I have um, just uh, one, one more question for you today, Eric. Um, could you, in a few words, you know, looking ahead, um, you know, so moving forward, what steps should merchants take in order to incorporate real-time payments and capture growth opportunities? Obviously, um, just a few words on this, um, just anything, I suppose, from, from, from your perspective. Yeah. So, um, you know, the good news is, is that most of these businesses are already taking these steps today um, as, a, as it relates to evolving consumer purchasing behavior, as well as, you know, the preference for contactless payments around COVID, et cetera. So, 
you know, it starts with um, deploying and, and optimizing sort of an online or mobile commerce experience. So making that available with the idea of identifying a user with an account. So your Starbucks account or your Best Buy account or your McDonald's account, right? Mm -hmm. So you start with that and you have the ability for consumers to transact online or with a mobile device. So that's the first part. Second part is uh, consider uh, or, you know, in, in adapting or adopting or enhancing, you know, loyalty programs. And many retailers, especially larger ones, already have these in place. Um, but it's something that um, if it is in place already, it's, it is a foundation that you can build on once your cost of payment processing goes down you can incentivize uh, users to, to pay with those lower cost options with uh, royalty, or sorry, not royalty, um, loyalty programs and rewards programs. And so having those in place already is again, you know, gives you a leg up. It's something you can sort of lean into when you have uh, lower cost payment options. Um, after that's in place, uh, that's when you can start looking at adopting alternative rails. So whether it's something like a guaranteed ACH rail or something like App Brilliance's uh, white labeled um, faster payments rail. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that you now have all of the necessary prerequisites that you can inject that in there. And then the next step, which is really, really important, is that you now you can create a win win with consumers. So now you've got that alternative rail and you have all of that pre those prerequisites in place. Now you can do tender steerage, right? So you can incentivize people to use that rail to the exclusion of others. You can uh, incentivize people to link that as their preferred method of payment. And now you've got that consumer identified, you have a login account, you have them doing those checkout experiences on their device. You have them enrolled in this uh, no recourse, faster payments rail that is you know, lower cost for the business. And then at that point that you promote it, and you achieve scale. Once you have, you know, five or 10% of your uh, consumers that are regularly purchasing from your business that are on this next generation rail, again, uh, mobile or commerce or e-commerce related, then you can turn around and activate that at the point of sale. And you can reward those consumers when they're actually physically at the brick and mortar uh, retailer. Um, and they would basically tie into the uh, investments they've already made in the mobile and copper, the mobile and the uh, e-commerce uh, implementations of those same strategies. So you extend that to the retail side at that point. You, you know, if you look back historically at like uh, some of the other alternatives that have been uh, tried in the United States, like currency slash MCX, hmm. you know, they were done at a time where a lot of those core enabling investments and in, in infrastructure did not exist. And so they had to try to take it directly to the point of sale. I mean, if you even look at, say, Google and Apple Pay, right? Uh, so many challenges around getting to scale had to do with the starting point of getting those things implemented at retail point of sale. So if, if retailers follow the formula that I just described, right, starting on, you know, the online and commerce and mobile, and then slowly expanding that back to retail point of sale, I think that is the, the key for uh, scaled mass market adoption for faster payments. And I think that's what Visa had in mind um, when they were they were looking at acquiring Plaid and they were they were thinking that alternative payment rails uh, could represent a 25% market shift uh, over the next few years in the US. 
Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's, that's how we see this uh, merchants being able to prepare for the, the coming uh, advantages of next generation payment rails. That's great. Thank you, Eric. I think, um, again, with what, what you've just spoke about, I think it will be um, interesting to just, I suppose with what you've just said, actually just witness what's going to happen, you know, over time, as, as we've said, with a lot of the discussion today, it's really seeing what's going to map out and what's going to happen um, in the months. And I suppose in a year's time, you know, it'd be quite interesting to see actually how uh, things yet again have changed, developed um, in regards to um, the disruption side of things with fintech, um, you know, the innovation, the digital transformation. Um, but yeah, I think um, with, with today, I think, I, you know, I have to appreciate the time that you've given, obviously, to talk today. Um, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Eric. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.